This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. Joe, really appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about open source because I came across your research paper on open source. Uh, I think I don't know if I saw it through LinkedIn or Twitter or how, but I came across it. I looked through it, and it was it was just fascinating. And I wanted to catch up with you about this and how it works and what you find. So let me just start at the beginning. Right. How does a PhD graduate student at Virginia Tech start studying federal technology policy, open source? Just talk about yourself and a little bit about your background. It was LinkedIn. It was it was many months of conversations and emails back and forth, and uh, we finally we finally did it. But um, so my background is, without being too long winded, is I am a federal employee. I've been a federal employee for for about 16 and a half years. I have about three and a half years of military time as well in the U.S. Army from the 90s. And um, I've always done technology. I have two graduate degrees. Uh, one is in information systems from GW. Taught at GW for a while as well, and I uh, went for my PhD in public administration and public affairs at Virginia Tech and focused on uh, naturally technology. I've been in CIO shops my whole career. Uh, I've been um, over at the White House for, for a stint, uh, working on policy there in, in uh, the previous administration. And, uh, and so it's near and dear to my heart. The technology itself, and especially open source software and software in general, uh, started off as a coder, front-end developer, did some project management for a while, went back to development, did some policy. So I've, I've kind of done it all uh, for, for IT uh, policy and implementation and uh, software development. And open source is one of those things in government that I think agencies, CIOs love to hate. They always talk about it, but then they kind of use it or don't use it. So let's talk about your research. How did you go about it? And, and what are some of the things that you're starting to find as you start to look into how agencies are, are using open source? It was a three-year study, and it started right after the publication of the federal source code policy. And that, it has a better name than that. That's just what we call it on the inside. Uh, it's the M1621. Came out in 2016 and basically told agencies to do three things. Agencies were to develop, to develop their own uh, source code policy internally, how they deal with source code, how they deal with open source, update acquisition language to capture new custom code as it's developed by a federal employee or a contractor, and then um, also create a software inventory or a source code inventory, publish that on the agency, you know, agency website, preferably the root directory, that would be posted on code.gov, and uh, 20% of that inventory should be published uh, as open source software. And um, knowing that and being close to that, you know, working in, in the agency where I work and, and working on our uh, software policy and our open source policy, and then later uh, coming in contact with the code.gov team, you know, I started to look at, you know, basically some agencies were doing fairly well uh, with publishing software uh, open source and, and other agencies weren't. So it was a question of really what's happening here. If agencies conceivably have an IT budget, an IT workforce, software developers, contractors, feds, what have you, and some agencies can publish and others can, it's kind of like what's happening, you know, organizationally. And, and so I went down this path of, okay, let's do an organizational analysis of organizations and publishing code. And let's look at the, CEO, the major agencies, the cabinet level agencies, and really dive into uh, some of these organizational factors. So if I remember correctly, the M1621, as you mentioned, is uh, something I think, uh, was it Tony Scott who signed out or was that pre-Tony Scott? 
That was Tony Scott. Yeah. Yes. And I remember the, the code.gov was we started to pay attention to this. And I think some of those folks have, have updated and, and right now the amount of software, amount of open source on code.gov is, is pretty good, generally speaking, even though I guess we're uh, almost five years since that memo. So give me a sense. Right. So you looked at what agencies were doing, how they, how they were using it. What were some of your findings? What were some of the things about the, that, that you found that were interesting when it came to the research? So you're right. So Tony Scott signed the memo. It was 2016, uh, right at the end of the Obama administration. And uh, the Trump administration was coming in. There was, there was sort of com- some concern whether the policy would, would stay or not. Uh, the Trump administration was, was totally on board with the policy and it continued. Code.gov itself was being stood up as a website in the API, Application Programming Interface. Um, and, and basically that just it harvests, harvests the software files, the inventory files, and you could get that through an API so you could get a collection of data. Or you could just go to code.gov. And um, I think code.gov is around 6,800 code repositories at, at this point. And it's, and it's the metadata of where the repositories or where the actual code lives, whether it's on GitHub or an agency website or Bitbucket or GitLab. It's out there. So about 6,800 in the code repository, as you were saying, that's where the metadata lives. So what you found in your research is why some agencies are, which five, which 10, which 20 agencies are are, are responsible for that 6,800 pieces of code that they put out there and which ones have put up less code. So what were some of the things as this got built up and over time, what did you find that stopped agencies or if you will, promoted agencies into sharing code and using open source? I think what's interesting is if we step back for a second too, and, and I talk about this in my, in my research, I, when I went down the path of, okay, what, you know, what's the intersection of the federal government and open source software? And, uh, you know, you can find commercial literature. There's, there's books out there about obviously open source and computing and, and all of these things, um, different you know, presses and books. And the reality is that there really isn't a good government you know, federal government or, or any government that I know of uh, narrative about software or computing in government, if you will, or at least not that I could find. And especially when you go to, to software and then open source software. And so I, so I sort of wrote this narrative and it, and it leads back to World War II, which is kind of interesting, right? Um, computing, computation devices, you know, things were enlisted, if you will, to support the war, right? Artillery trajectory, eventually cryptography and those things that came later. So what's, I think what's interesting, what comes from that, though, is that more recently you see more consumption than publication. If you get to like the 1990s, you get the server technologies and web technologies and things like that. But then you also see where agencies that were publishing more tended to be agencies like NASA and energy and, and places where there's labs or space centers, right? There's, um, we'll probably talk about the culture and the, the skills and things like that, but you know, there's definitely something there that uh, started ultimately like in the Harvard Computational Laboratory that was funded by the Navy in World War II. Now we, you know, fast forward, we get to like a space center or we get to um, even some other agencies that don't have those sorts of things like GSA and CFPB, but they have newer technology sort of offices or centers that have um, sprung up and also tend to operate in that mode where it seemed like some of the more maybe not labs, not things like that. I'm trying to think of how to describe it. So much more like somewhat, I, I would say institutional, but it's not even really that proper word, but some of the other places like maybe state or defense is, is interesting because you get it in pockets. Um, like Air Force does really well, but 
maybe Navy doesn't do as well. And then OSD does some policy, but they don't necessarily publish because they're a policy shop. So you get like a mixed bag. And that's what we were finding. So I, the way I started it was I went out to GitHub and used the GitHub API and just did a search, a metadata search of all the government code that I could find, federal government code that I could find. And I basically split the agencies into thirds of frequency of publication, how often they publish. And um, I actually did it before, I did it after the policy came out, but I looked at their publication, you know, agency publication before and after, and it was kind of a mixed bag. It was interesting. And, and it didn't really have anything to do, I mean, obviously the space centers and things do, do better. Um, some of it has to do because they're doing research and that's part of the artifact of the, you know, the, the publications that they're putting out. But at the same time, there's other agencies in there that we're publishing and they don't have those sorts of, you know, outlets, right? They don't have those mechanisms. So it's like something is different about the organizations potentially, not so much what their mission or function is. Um, and you could see that sort of mixed bag with what was on GitHub as well. It's interesting you, you highlight this, this idea of certain agencies are better, other ones it's, it's a culture issue, it's a, there's an organizational issue. You have certain ones like NASA and Energy that have labs and, and places like that. Yet there's been memo after memo. I, I think I counted the last time I wrote the story in 2016, half a dozen memos over the last 25 years pushing agencies to share open source. All the memos are nice, but it sounds to me like what you found was the issue here is, is, is a culture issue on top of a what? Or there's a feeling of I can do it. I mean, that's part of the culture, but, but it's almost getting the okay or, or looking at the people who came before you and they said, oh, they did it, so I can do it too. G give me a sense of what you found as you split those agencies into thirds and, and started to see how often they publish. Yeah, and I would say there's two things here. I would say that there is a history of policy development and, and one builds on the next. So it's, it's that incremental change over time. A lot of times when uh, we, I was going to say, when we talk about open source software and government, so me and my colleagues that do development and, and support open source in the federal space or just open source in general, a lot of times one of the first things that we point to is there, there's a, a DOD like Q&A document. It's not even a policy. It was like a Q&A document from, I want to say the, the 1980s or something, um, speaking to, you know, can we use open source software to fast forward to, I forget the year, there was a more recent policy before the M1621 that basically says, you know, for acquisitions, we should be considering um, open source software to then fast forward and, you know, M1621 that says, okay, now we have to actually account for our software and, and not just inventory software, but like do an inventory of the source code at the, at the source code, like, like metadata layer, if you will. So you can, you know, if, if, uh, if, if NASA is using something, um, I think they ended up publishing like Mars Rover, source code, right? Like something that's totally kind of weird, but might be fascinating to someone and, and potentially helpful, you know, in some, some function-based coding or some sort of algorithm that somebody could use for problem solving. Um, you know, who knows, right? That's out there. Let me just step in here for a sec, because I think what, what you're saying about the history is really fascinating. It goes back to the 80s. We've seen a bunch of different policies pop up. So when you looked at the agencies and you split them into thirds, some publish more often, some publish less, what, what did you find, first of all, like how many agencies were publishing more often and, and how many weren't? And again, is it, it's probably not an equal third, one third, one third. And, and then we'll talk about the reasons why that they, some were, were publishing more often and some weren't. And I, I know the culture piece that we were just talking about is part of that. The organizational factors that I looked at too was, um, it was culture, it was public engagement, 
it was um, uh, structural factors, and there, there's numerous structural factors we, we could go through. And then there's also organizational location, which speaks more to like hierarchy uh, in the organization. And, um, you know, the, the breakdown was really just somewhat of a simple breakdown. So if you, if you take 24, I went by 24 CFO Act agencies. So if you just, you know, CFO Act agencies, you get the, the it's basically the cabinet levels and you get the support agencies like NSF and GSA and, and those folks as well. But it's, it's, you take the 24, you see who's publishing uh, or how much they're publishing or I guess frequency is, is volume in some sense. And then you just, I just went like third, 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 but then that's where I went back and said, well, you know, that's an easy split just, just to help me kind of categorize and organize. But then you go back and you kind of say, well, okay, so if everyone has a CIO shop, conceivably everyone has a, a, a budget relative to size. Um, everyone has skill. It's like, how come this one agency publishes more frequently than this other? And, and that's really where it's like, there's got to be something else going on here. It's, it's not just a free for all, you know, I thought it would, I went into this thinking like, Oh, it's going to be the wild west. People do what they want. If one agency wants to publish, they can publish and the other one just can't, you know, because of some weird reason. And it's like, let's apply some logic to this and look at these org factors and say, okay, what's, what's really happening here. And, and so that was the, that was the approach uh, with the research. Joe, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. Today, we're talking about Joe's dissertation and recent study about open source software in the federal government. As you broke it down, what, what were some of the trends you saw? I mean, as you said, everyone has a CIO, everyone has a budget. It's not like the agencies are that much different. So what were some of your findings? Let's, let's go down that path. I didn't mention this before. So I ended up talking to, it was a qualitative research, ended up interviewing 25 participants from 20 agencies. No participant was from the same data science, software development, you know, IT shop, non-IT shop, wherever they resided in the organization. So there was no overlap among, among units. And I, take, I took it to a unit level, but then that's sort of loosely defined between, you know, it could be three people that do data science to a division in an IT shop to a, you know, a project team or something. So I kind of let people define that a little bit. But I did interviews. I also did artifact collection. I would look at things like hierarchy, you know, organization charts and, and, and that kind of stuff. But um, so that basically um, taking those organization factors, though, some of the findings um, around culture. So culture kind of split itself between what I called advantageous and um, cautionary beliefs. And um, advantageous tended to, to be that organizations or units that had sort of this positive notion of, of open source is, is good and we should publish for multiple reasons. One of, one of them was demonstration of competency, which I thought was interesting. There's, there's federal employees out there that uh, develop software they want to publish because they want to be able to show others that they're actually competent in some sense. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting 
uh, I never thought about that. And, and, and maybe that's a side effect of, of negative things that happen, you know, talk around government and what have you. It's like, no, we are actually pretty confident. We can do some things here. Cautionary was like, it doesn't align to the, the scope of work that we do. You know, my focus is on, you know, IRS. My focus is on tax uh, returns and tax automation or something, right? But it's not really just to develop software to publish it. Right. Like that's sort of a side effect. And we'll do it if it makes sense for us as a unit, but we're not getting paid to publish software necessarily. And so that was one of them. What what was interesting about cultural beliefs is that you were more likely to publish more frequently if you did have advantageous cultural beliefs. So if you thought there was going to be some good that would come of it, then that unit would most likely publish more. Um, I think what was even more interesting, though, is that a lot of folks who didn't publish thought that they should be publishing. But there was some other factor coming into play that would prohibit them from publishing. Um, and there's actually multiple factors that, that come into play for that. Um, in, in some cases, um, for cautionaries, like advantageous wasn't enough. You also needed participatory decision making. So you needed um, some sort of, I won't call it autonomy, but you needed some sort of I guess it is, you know, some sort of hands-off nature or some, some way that individuals in your group say like, oh, okay, we, we should do this. We should help each other's community, which kind of leads back to what open source is in some sense. Um, you need diversity of skills. So you need individuals who understand what code is and how to publish it properly. Uh, and then you also need this sort of uh, a lot of uh, varied and more often public engagement. So th- again, the community aspect and things like that. So, so just having advantageous police wouldn't do it. Another interesting find was that policy makes the difference. So uh, what that means is that I heard from from groups that were publishing frequently that they can publish because they have a policy in place that says that they can do that. And then I heard from other groups that weren't publishing as much that would say um, we cannot publish because um, our CIO, our director, our whoever has not given us permission. They have not given us something in writing or a policy to do so. I thought this was pretty interesting because I was thinking, again, thinking it's the Wild West. Computer programmers, whether they're government or contractors, are just publishing whatever they want to publish just because they, you know, they find value they see to be the right thing or whatever they're doing. And the reality is that it was like, no, it was actually you need a, you need a policy whether you publish or not. Like, you know, no government employee was, was going to move or not move, you know, move without a policy, I guess you would say. And so that was really pretty interesting. And it actually went against what the literature was saying, the organizational literature, too, because that was saying that uh, a lot of times for IT, you don't need as much formalization. It's more of a ground up. You can just get things moving and uh, put things out there uh, based on your knowledge and your skill and others will, will kind of follow along. And the reality is that's not the case in, in the government space. I think part of the reason, and you probably see this in your day-to-day job, is there's obviously risk aversion among government. And, you know, if someone, and we'll pick on the IRS for a second because it's easy to pick on them. Well, if I put this code out and what if someone looks at it and realizes there's a backdoor and then all of a sudden I I make taxpayer information public, I think that that risk aversion probably plays into it. Did Did you talk about that risk aversion? I did not specifically. It did come up. And, and, you know, I'll tell you a story. Um, you know, I, I often go to different agencies and, and speak to them about open source software and software development because there, there is a certain way to create the code to publish it, right? There's a, there's a certain way that you have to make sure it's clean in some sense. And, and I'll say right up front that open source software is not for, 
for every project for everyone, right? There, there are some reasons why you potentially wouldn't want to publish, you know, certain code bases. So it's not, I'm not out here advocating and saying like, it's hundred percent and we do, you know, everything. I think everything should for government. I think everything should be open by default um, in the sense that it's taxpayer dollars and it's the people's code. And if something's created, it should be open and open by default just says that if you're not going to open it, you just have to justify why, right? Like internally justify, you don't have to necessarily put, you know, public statements out and all this stuff. I, you know, I, that's beyond me, but the reality is like internally, like why wouldn't we want to publish this code um, as well? But yeah, there, there definitely is some risk aversion. And I think it, leads to to somewhat of a knowledge and an understanding in some sense because the way i look at open source is that it, it's sort of um you know linus's law um linus torvald uh you know all bugs are shallow with a thousand eyes and if you look at some of the more recent i'll, I'll just say breaches across industry and government i won't i won't pinpoint per se but if you if you look at some of the more recent things, had some of those software programs been open source, some of those patches could have been put in place before there was ever an issue with that software. Now, in some cases, obviously, there could be exploitations as well. But one of the things that we always, we always, I always point out is when I hear sort of a pushback, I always um, point to NSA as a good model in the sense that here is the nation's, you know, cyber you know, defenses, right, and, and very knowledgeable people, and they're publishing open source software all the time. And so I kind of say, like, well, if they can do it, shouldn't everybody? I mean, and they're publishing programs for, like, reverse engineering, you know, programs and, and uh, you know, and all sorts of stuff, which probably leads to a broader, like, you know, organizational factor that they, they have overcome some hurdle that other agencies can, and it might be the skill gap, it could be the culture, it could be policies, it could, you know, what have you, uh, that makes them different. But um, yeah, I always kind of push back on that in some sense. I think it's an overreaction to something that's not well understood. From a policy perspective, th that's the other thing that I thought was very interesting. As I mentioned earlier, there's been policies over the last 25 years. You mentioned M1621 as the most recent one. There was duty policies before that. Is that not enough? Did you hear from the people you studied that, well, it's one thing for OMB, but I really need it from my boss or, or my CIO or what, what what was the disconnect there that did you look into that? I did not look into that directly. There definitely was some of that when I was speaking about uh, individuals won't move without policy, but it has to be like a localized policy. So th there definitely is something to be said for that. And and I think if you look at M1621 and it says like the first, the first, I was going to say the first rule, but the first, um, you know, notion is that, every agency creates their own internal policy. So, you know, that's step one. And then even it tends to go lower than that. So when I went to the units and one unit in particular, I spoke to them and I thought they were just, they were default to open and they were just publishing whatever they wanted. And they were the ones who actually said, or the person that I interviewed uh, said, so the first thing we did when this came out is we created our own internal policy that, that matched up to, the agency policy that matched up to the M1621, but we wanted to make clear among our organization or our unit on what we can and can't do. So there definitely is like layers of policy that it has to get to the individuals who are doing the work, if you will. And um, which is also interesting because a lot of the open source and software development is really a bottom up sort of thing, right? A lot of the folks who are going to be 
and this might be some of the risk aversion too. A lot of the folks who are really dealing with uh, open source software on a daily basis are the ones who are dealing with the code on a daily basis. And so when you sort of talk about these general terms, I think it scares people at higher levels because they don't, they don't see it on a daily basis. Like if I, if I, um, you know, I'm writing a program and it's a React application and I'm pulling in, you know, NPM packages every day, node package manager packages, and I'm running automated scans on them uh, as I'm pulling in these things. And I have like five different test suites. I, I would venture to say that my software with open source integration and being open source is safer than any software behind a firewall. But I think when you talk about it in general terms to people that don't work at that level, they don't they're just like, oh no, we can't open anything. This is not, this is not good for us. <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we manage? No, no, security, security. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, hold on. I have more, I have more security packages on my current site or more, you know, automation layers on my current site than I think most around me that are behind a firewall. <laughs> so I don't understand, you know, but it's that sort of disconnect in the, in maybe in the language or the process of what's happening. Joe, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. Today, we're talking about Joe's dissertation and recent study about open source software in the federal government. Let's talk about some of your other findings. You, you talked about the organizational, there's structure, there's other things. What else came across that was surprising or, or of interest of, about why open source was used or not used or, or made public? Yeah. And, and I think what's, what's interesting is, you know, we, we sort of jump from like cultural to a little bit of structural. There was a, the culture of the public engagement, the structural and the organization location. And, um, What's interesting, um, I didn't go into as much detail on the cultural, but um, for cautionary beliefs too, there was, I talked about aligning to scope. There was also this sort of change in, in change. You know, everyone's sort of weary, I'm generalizing now, but everyone's sort of weary of change and, and having new policy is change. So I heard that frequently. Risk, we talked about that a little bit. And then needing permission. There was this whole sort of, and that sort of goes to that policy thing as well. But there was definitely like, oh, no, I can never publish anything unless my boss tells me I can publish that. So I heard that over and over again, too, where in some of the other units that did have more advantageous and that were publishing more, it was more about like creating communities, demonstrating competencies. I talked about that, realizing benefits. I heard from one person who actually said, look, you know, I don't have a lot of resources. I don't have a lot of money. So if I can get something free. And I can integrate that into my product, an open source product into my open source product or an open source product into my product that's not open source. I'll take that. I'll leverage that, you know, knowledge um, capability or that free resource uh, any day of the week, um, which I thought was pretty interesting um, being that candid about it. There's definitely something about open source obviously has, I, I talked about World War II and it starts in the Harvard Computational Laboratory and there were conferences about you know, the COBOL language and compilers and sharing and all that stuff. There's definitely still a lot of that going on. You have to get outside of your own boundaries, your own organizations. And, and I would say, you know, obviously this is a study about 
open source and policy implementation, but I would say that's almost on anything, right? If you really want to learn, you're going to have to, you're going to learn from others. You're going to get outside of your own boundaries and you're going to have those conversations. You're going to, for us, it's, you're going to share code. You're going to share open source policies. Um, you know, we, we do that a lot across government. It's like, Hey, my agency won't let me use this product uh, that has to do with continuous integration. Can you, you know, but it's, op it's open source or not open source. Can you speak to that a little bit? Or, hey, what's your policy look like for, um, you know, uh, or acquisition language for capturing new custom code? Can you share that with me? And, and but without that, you're, you're living in these silos where you're, where you're not learning. So that was definitely uh, something that came up. The policy, I talked about that. Organization location, there's definitely an, a layered, sort of the hierarchy of the organization, but the, the units that did tend to publish more tended to be closer to an authority figure, you know, uh, typically an SES level person. And that gave them sort of the, this autonomy of, I, I trust you in what you're doing with your technology, if it's open source. And I don't even know if they even knew it was open source, but it, whatever you need to do your software, <laughs> you know, you're, you guys are the experts, you, you folks, you know, you guys and gals are the experts and I trust you. And they didn't have reporting layers. Um, in the places where they did, it was like, oh, if my architectural review board that's five layers above or five process documents that I have to fill out, they'll never approve this stuff, right? But if it was one unit where the authority, the person that can make decisions was sitting right there, they were more likely to, to do what they needed to do. Or, or in some cases, it also came down to um, uh, professional orientation. So uh, one person told me, well, I, uh, it was data science related, but it was like, uh, we prescribe to, you know, the IEEE or, or some organization data science process of, of uh, you know, examining problems and publishing software that goes along with it. And that almost gave them a license to, to then publish as well, which was pretty interesting. Um, it was sort of a professionalization or professional nature of this this code development and publishing. In all of your research, I know you, you will probably want to stay away from talking about specific agencies and who's up or who's down or who's better, or who's worse. But did, did anything generally surprise you? I mean, it makes sense, as you said, NASA or Energy or, or a place like GSA or CFPB are publishing. It may make sense for, and, and I'll, I'll just roll dice and guess, maybe someone like HUD or someone like Interior or someone like Treasury or State maybe isn't, or Justice maybe isn't as active. Did anything more generally surprise you without naming names, so to speak? That's interesting because um, actually some of the agencies, and, and you're right, I don't want to poke holes, but, um, and, and actually it's in, it's in the dissertation. There's a, there's a table and it shows like who's publishing by those, those thirds. So it's, it's out there, it's published, it's public knowledge, but I, I don't want to necessarily call them out. But it's interesting, what I was going to say is interesting because some of the ones that you called out were doing better than, than you made it sound. And and potentially some of the ones that that I think you thought were doing well are, are not doing well. So it's See, kind of, I, I kind guessed, of funny. And I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of funny because we have sort of these these uh, perceptions about these agencies for whatever you know biases we have. But the reality is that uh, when you look at the numbers, it's it, it doesn't make sense. And that's why you kind of say, okay, there's something else going on. It's systemic with the way these organizations operate, regardless of what we hear about them or, you know, <laughs> sort of our biases towards them. <laughs> Do you get a sense, I don't know if you've studied private sector, but are agencies any better, any worse about the same as the private sector? Do you have a comparison or have you looked at any comparison, whether through this dissertation or not? 
Yeah, that's that's interesting too. I also have one one really interesting find I want to talk about at the end. But that's interesting because I've been to a lot of conferences. I speak a lot about this, and they're all commercial conferences. They're non-government, non-profit, what have you. And um, there are a lot of companies, and this will make sense in a second. There are a lot of companies who don't really publish a whole lot. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with their their uh, their IP, right? Their their um, what they sell, what they make, all that good stuff. And so they don't want to necessarily release that code. Um, I can tell you that some of the biggest players, more recently, Microsoft is is one of them. They they bought up GitHub, Red Hat, and IBM. But I know for sure, like Microsoft is is one of the, or if not the number one publisher of open source software now on GitHub. Um, and that was actually even before they bought them, I believe as well but it's it's not that common across the board i think for government and industry but i think what's interesting and this is my bias here but i think what's interesting for government is that since we are paid by the taxpayers or the code is funded by the taxpayers we have a different obligation than than industry does industries you know is obviously a profit motive right uh for government it's it's to serve the public and provide a public good. And I think, um, you know, we should be doing more in, in the sense of, of publishing. But I would say, you know, back to the industry government, we're, it, if anything, well, I wouldn't say we publish more. I would say we're making, obviously making more of a public effort. And that's because we have policies and things around. Like, like there's things that we see that we don't necessarily see from some of these other, other big companies. Joe, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Joe Castle, a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech who studied federal technology policy and open source software. Today, we're talking about Joe's dissertation and recent study about open source software in the federal government. What do you hope comes from this white paper? You got your PhD, congratulations, that's one big thing. But obviously you wrote it for a bigger policy reason. When you do public administration and public policy, you, you want to get the word out and somehow you want to socialize it. You, you mentioned you're speaking at some events. What else do you want to kind of socialize this and what do you want to come from your research? And, and I think this kind of leads back to, um, you know, there's definitely implications for the research for public administrators. And um, this goes back to the, sort of the big finding that I hadn't been talking about. But there's this notion in government of the hollow state. And um, the idea is that, you know, there's an emergence of, of third party organizations that are taxpayer funded. You know, it's this whole sort of contracting out that occurred during the Clinton administration that, you know, obviously that's the model of um, mostly the model of government. And I've seen it in IT shops around government as, as well. But I think what's interesting about this is, is might be somewhat telling and could be a future research for, for someone else since my PhD is finished, <laughs> is that I think we are at a point in time where the government is potentially lacking some skill, some technological skill. And I think it's going to have, or it is already having a, a, a broader impact on technology policy implementation and technology implementation across government. Obviously, you know, based on this research, and, and I'm sure there's a lot more out there, there's a lot of other factors. There's the cultural and public engagement org factors and all these things. But the reality is that if we can't understand the technology, we as in federal government employees can't understand the technology, don't have the proper skills, either we're not trained or we're not bringing in the right talent or just 
not so much not the right talent, just don't have the talent because we're all in a talent fight for the for the you know the best people or the good people. Ultimately, we potentially become bad buyers and managers and you know implementers of technology. So from this research, I I hope that it really it shines light on that. I, I think every year I've been I've been in government for over twenty years. And I think every year it's always like oh the you know the average age of an employee is is X and we're going to have this big turnover and all these things. And I've been hearing that for years and, you know, I'm sure it's, you know, there's a certain, there is a certain amount of attrition per year and all that stuff. The reality is that if we really want to focus on the efficiency of government and the technology and the policy of government, then we need to, we need to be really focused on, you know, what we're doing with our employees and their skills and hiring and all of that good stuff and, and get serious about it. The point that you make is one that we hear many times and have heard over the last 15 years or so. But what I, I think is it also has led to is places like GSA and the Technology Transformation Service and 18F and the U.S. Digital Service at OMB. And then each agency kind of creating their own digital services groups within DHS has one, DOD has a de- defense mm-hmm. digital service. So I think there's a, there's that recognition. And it's interesting because I, I, I'm wondering, and this is maybe a shot in the dark here, those are the organizations that maybe are those pockets that are doing better because they're bringing in the newer people who are more accepting of, oh, it's open source. Of course, we're going to use it. Or, of course, we're going to publish it because we've always done it that way from you know their previous careers or whatever. Did you see a correlation or, or some kind of connection? That's interesting. So the, there was definitely a conversation. So actually, two things happened. There was definitely some, you know, some of the units were closely tied to those types of units. And then the second part is that some of the, some of the units that were not would leverage those types of units. So, you know, they would, you know, uh, go out and get like an 18F or USDS to come in for a job and to do something with them. Um, And uh, uh, I talk about that somewhat in the public engagement part where it was interesting as organizations started to open up and use more public engagement mechanisms, they would, they would um, actually start to use things like GitHub to um, crowdsource acquisition documents or something, right? And, and which goes beyond the community effect of just everyone, let's work on the same code base. So it's taking sort of open source or just open government, open however you want to name it, uh, one step further. Uh, which was pretty interesting. I, I think the hollow state is is um, interesting because I think there's, you know, for a while in the press or wherever that, you know, within offices and things, there was this sort of discussion of, you know, why do we have these government organizations like digital services and 18F and, and those sorts of, you know, shouldn't, you know, in the, in the model of contracting out, shouldn't we just be contracting all of this? And it's sort of like yes and no. Like you still need the people in house to understand the technology and the, and the policy, and potentially be hands on at some level, so that then they can work with the the vendors, right? They can go out and buy the right things and and make sure that the government is is spending wisely and being efficient and and all of these things. But if if we as government managers, you know, typically in government, um, at least in the IT shops I've been at, it's it's you come in as sort of a, a journey journeyman, journeywoman, right? At a certain level, you go through a couple of grades and then next thing you know, you're sitting at a, you know, a GS 13, 14, potentially a 15. And, and now you're out of the trenches and you haven't touched any technology in 10, 15, 20 years. And you're relying on a vendor to give you the source of the, of the truth at some level, right? But it's, it's, we need to make sure that our, 
IT folks and, and, and in my study, it was actually a lot of folks outside of IT offices that were actually doing IT too, which is interesting, right? You have data science and, and other, uh, other areas, these labs and things that aren't in formal CIO shops. But, but we need to make sure we're taking care of the hollow state effect and have knowledgeable folks who can write knowledgeable IT policy, implement you know, IT policy, and then implement technology. Joe, I've very much enjoyed the conversation. Uh, before I let you go, I guess the last piece of this is, so how would you say we're doing, how, how would you say agencies are doing with open source? I mean, is this, is this a success story in, in, in four and a half years since M1621? Is it, you know, would you give them a good solid B plus is, if I was in your class? It would C minus, what, what kind of grade would you give them? Wow, that's a good question. I, I, uh, <laughs> I love that. I, I, I would say we're, we're about a B. I want to be, I want to be as optimistic as, as possible. And, and, uh, I think what we're seeing is that the agencies that were doing well continue to do well. The agencies that were kind of in the middle or kind of on the fence are starting to realize there is some benefit to this and they might want to jump in. Uh, case in point is I'll occasionally I'll get a call out of the blue and now, you know, the policy's 2016, we're in 2021 and I'll get a call out of the blue and they'll say, Hey Joe, we're about to uh, release a policy. Would you mind looking at it? And I'm like, Oh, really? Like, that's awesome. <laughs> like, like, that's great that, you know, like, I, you know, I know it was due, you know, four years ago, but hey, well, you know, why not? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Let's do it now, you know. Um, so, so there's definitely more awareness and that's sort of that, you know, continuous change over time or, you know, incremental change over time. So I, I would say it'd be, I mean, there's definitely more awareness. There's more understanding. And I think a lot of that has to do with what's happening in industry as well. It's just, it's this sort of bottom up, you know, people see things, you know, uh, about technology and open source and it becomes more of a, of a norming effect, right? And, and less of a, of a risk effect or a unknown. And so we run scared. So I, I would say like a B right now. And I, I would love, you know, um, one of the things I'm hoping for in the future, hopefully in the near future, um, is that, um, you know, the, uh, the 20% open source on the M1621 was a pilot uh, program. It was for three years. It went away. So right now agencies do not have to publish any open source uh, by mandate. And so what I would love to see um, for one is just uh, an updated or a, a new policy come out that at least gets us back to a 20% so we can, we can make sure that agencies are publishing open source. And what I would really love is to see open source by default, you know, put it out there that Hey, this is a public good, uh, just like anything else, and it's paid for by taxpayers. And you have to justify why you can't publish this. And uh, yeah, let's let's put some pressure on. <laughs> Joe, this has been a great conversation. I learned a lot, and and, and obviously, this is something we're going to continue to follow because open source is not going to go away anytime soon. And with new administration comes new opportunities. So we will be in touch again. But we're out of time for today. So let me thank my guest. Joe Castle is a recent PhD graduate at Virginia Tech. He studied federal technology policy and open source software. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Jason. It's been great. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.